This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. G'day. We're talking the Australian Grand Prix and round 18 of 20 on this latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. And wow, what a lot to get through. Like a Mark Marquez soft rear tyre, we're hoping to go the full distance on this new show and we're aiming for Alex Rins-like performance thanks to our friends at Rental Street. That's right, if you're a new listener to the show, then you might be surprised to learn that the powerful off-road accessory brand have a whole host of customization options for your street bike. From bars to grips to chains, sprockets and tons more, Rental is definitely worth checking out if you want an upgrade on those stock parts. Don't forget Fly Racing as well. From protective gear to casual wear to any practical riding options the american brand is another company that has the full monty for bikers knobbly tires or otherwise have a look at flyracing.com for the range talking philip island with me on track offroad.com's adam wheeler is a slightly grumpy david emmett who had to strain the leash with an upside down timetable to update the always excellent and informative motomatters.com and the baritone bunyip himself neil morrison who is still down under and probably ready to swallow a whole boomerang after almost two weeks on the road uh lads first of all moments of the weekend please dave you first uh for me i think it was that the the race winning overtake as they like to say on um uh, on motogp.com um the moment where alex rins you know carries speed out of doing corner um out the you know turn one and it, it just dives up the inside of really stuffs it up the inside of banyaya uh mark marcus comes through it was just it was illustrative of exactly what Rins was capable of. Um, I watched the race with my wife again yesterday, sort of in the evening, because she hadn't seen it in the morning. And um, she was going all the way through and said, oh, no, he's going to crash. He's definitely going to crash. You couldn't see Rins, <laughs> uh, Rins winning. But it, it was an absolutely superb um, performance by Rins. Uh, fantastic move. Did exactly everything he needed to, to win. And also... Uh, the, the way he was doing it is because the, the you know the, the left side of the tire is stressed so much that he knew that he had to uh, so he could take a lot more risk uh, on right handers and so he was just carrying so much more speed through turn one and turn one is already pretty terrifying um, but to push it even further was just outstanding so that that for me it, it, it just sort of like summed up the entire weekend. I have to apologise to those people watching this podcast on YouTube because we're looking slightly peaked. Uh, well, Dave and I have a very unflattering light because it's quite late uh, in the evening on, on Monday. Neil, um, you know, you're trying your best to look rather dapper, even though it's quite early in the morning for you in Australia. And you're getting ready to head out to Malaysia uh, for the next Grand Prix in Sepang. Um, what was your, your moment, Neil, if you can muster up the, uh, the, the kind of, you know, force of thought at this early hour? Yeah, I've uh, had a coffee and an espresso, so just about ready to kick into gear out. Um, I would say my moment has to be just uh, Fabio Quattararo's first big uh, mistake down at turn four. I think it was on the fourth or fifth lap. Um, and pretty much from that moment, I think uh, it just had the feeling that this was this was over. Um, he looked a bit ragged. He looked a bit um, under pressure, I think, in the early laps. He was constantly on the defensive Um and uh, yeah, he was getting beaten up by different types of bike in those early exchanges. And you compare that to someone like Alex Rins, who was just so aggressive. You know, you didn't really see Fabio ever looking like um, the, the the best Fabio that we've seen this year. Um, the mistake done in the turn four, as soon as it happened, I turned to um, my colleague, uh, Jack Appleyard, who was sat next to me in the media center. And we both just said, it's over done and uh, sure enough um, he crashed out for good measure soon afterwards um, and I think it just capped another miserable weekend um, you could say that um, Aragon wasn't his doing um, um, Thailand obviously that was something that was out of his control as well um, but this was absolutely um, something that was on Fabio and um, you have to say that when the pressure was really really on um, he didn't deliver um, he didn't deal well with it and um, yeah he was left fielding questions after the race about whether he has the, the kind of mentality to cope with these kind of high pressure um, crunch time situations in the championship because 2020 didn't end too well after he led the championship going into the final month and a half and um, I mean it doesn't really look like as though this is going to end so well for him either 
Neil, for a moment there, I thought you were going to say it was his first sort of big mistake of the season. Um, you know, because like you say, the last four or five Grand Prix, it's just seemed like a litany really of small areas or small errors of judgment, either on his behalf or the team or, you know, Yamaha generally. It's not been an easy situation at all. I think that's now three non-scores for Quattararo in the last four races. And that's, I mean, that's the opposite of championship form, isn't it? It's really coming down to the crunch uh, just with 50 points and two races left. Um, the reason I mentioned our somewhat laboured um, aspects, gentlemen, is because my uh, moment of the weekend was um, a complete contrast. It was seeing the utter joy that Mark Marquez expressed um, having taken second position, um, having finished, I think it was less than two tenths of a second from Alex Rins's rear wheel. Um, have we ever seen Mark so joyful as to finish runner up? I mean, I know it was a strange weekend for him in terms of working very much on the 2023 RCV on the Friday with the new aero package. Um, and then finally getting his head in the game on Saturday. It was a slow race. Uh, it was a left handed circuit, you know, which favors him always. Um, and, you know, he was immensely competitive. It was great to see. But then watching him on the slowdown lap try to do, uh, or he actually did, um, run along the fence giving multiple high fives to the fans. I thought that's a real test of the uh, the right arm, that is. I mean, never mind <laughs> throttling a MotoGP bike around for 27 laps. If you're trying to high five a lot of burly Australians who have been sat in that chilly wind for a while, then uh, you really have got some decent muscle power there. But um, aside from Mark, I think also something for me that stood out, uh, you know, not for a positive reason, but seeing... Jack Miller get punted out by Alex Marquez. It looked like a really nasty incident to begin with. I think Miller was lucky to escape being hurt um, just from a real misjudgment from Alex Marquez, who was looking pretty fast there, to be said. Um, and the irony of him falling out of his home Grand Prix when he looked arguably in the best shape ever to win it at Miller Corner um, was, was pretty heavy-handed. So there we go. Guys, um, let's let's talk a bit about Phillip Island, first of all, um, You because know, we've got a couple of subjects we want to discuss on this podcast. And for me... I just uh, think the circuit, the first time we've been back there since 2019, you know, three years away, uh, it was uh, a, f a fantastic situation in one way because I loved how on Friday a lot of the riders were kind of scratching their heads trying to work out setup. It's a circuit unlike no other on the World Championship, the fast flowing corners, the lack of hard braking, it really does throw things a little bit to the left field in terms of how everyone has to get ready for it. If you look at the respective categories as well, then there must have been high percentages of each grid, not familiar with Phillip Island, not familiar with their motorcycles and really lacking a lot of data to get ready for the race. Um, I think it was just, I think you used the phrase, Neil, in some of our note shows on the Patreon over the weekend, a curveball in every sense. And of course, Dave, like you, you hinted at as well, the, the race was amazing. I mean, the best we've had this season, the best we've probably had in recent times. But I can't help having this feeling that it's a little bit also primitive. You know, I mean, how many, how many instances of wildlife do we have to have running across the track? Uh, you know, is, does the track now look a little dated or should we not really give a shit about any of that because it's just about that strip of tarmac? Um, you know, the word dangerous was also floated around a couple of times across the weekend with the incident we saw in Moto2, Jorge Navarro. And then, you know, of course, the, the demands of Philip Island itself for MotoGP in, in 2022. So I just wonder what you thought. I mean, for me, the yes, it is primitive, I think is the wrong is the wrong word. It is an old school track. Um, it used to be public roads and... The, the, the best racetracks all used to be public roads because public roads have a sort of a tendency to follow uh, – the, they follow the landscape much more. You know, they're not artificially imposed on the landscape, which is what uh, circuit designers tend to do. Um, uh, and it gives it much more of a flowing feel to everything. So, yes, um, it – it is old school. The layout is old school. The, the It has a very old school vibe to it. There's not very many grandstands around, for example. Um, also possibly because the uh, foolishness of building grandstands on the edge of a cliff uh, where <laughs> massive gale for gale force winds tend to come through every now and again uh, they're likely to be blown to, to all the way to Tasmania every uh, every couple of years so that's that's probably not uh, not such a surprise um yeah i mean the, the the location i mean it's a fantastic location 
but it's also an unfortunate location in the sense that, you know, it is miles from anywhere. Um, it is on the edge of the ocean. So the, so, so the weather is coming in all of the, uh, uh, all of the time. Um, it, it makes, Putting a big commercial, you know, commercially viable or, uh, uh, well, a, 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 you know, a, a really big sporting development there uh, it makes no sense that you would never get the commercial returns on it just because you would never be able to attract the, the, the number of people there. I think the track does get used a lot because, you know, there's always like uh, track days and uh, lots and lots of like bike and car events, which are always going on there. Um, but that's sort of, you know, making small amounts of money all the time rather than actually you breaking in huge numbers of, uh, uh, of people. And there's just not the capacity around. Uh, to actually support that, you know, the, the kind of a, a kind of a really, really big event. It's just not the the accommodation capacity because I mean, Neil, I think you're or you were in uh, a little sort of um, uh, holiday home. Uh, even Pekka Banyaya was, you know, MotoGP uh, potential MotoGP champion, factory rider. Uh, he was saying it's a bit different because I have to make my own breakfast, um, <laughs> it, which is it, very. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's, maybe he was in a tent. Yeah, yeah. The teams stay again in in these holiday homes. It's it's completely different. It's it's very very different, and there's just not the capacity on the islands to you know house one hundred and fifty thousand people. Uh, nor would it be sort of you know it wouldn't even be very easy to actually get 150,000 people down there because it is uh, remote and expensive and uh, and all the rest of it. You know, a lot of Aussies would prefer prefer to go to Sepang or Thailand because uh, the, the entire weekend is much, much cheaper because you jump on a plane and then uh, get off at the other end and accommodation is cheap and food is cheap and the rest is, uh, and the rest is cheap. Now, uh, I mean, last time I went to Phillip Island was 2018. What was your, your feelings arriving there? Because, uh, you know, it was pissing with rain. Up to the point where we thought, you know, on Friday there even could be some change to the timetable because the track was actually flooded, you know, going through turn three. Uh, did you kind of think, oh, you know, why are we here again in October running the gauntlet of the climate? Um, or were you, you know, actually just kind of excited to be back, like we say, in this, this fantastic motorcycling environment? A mix of the two. I mean, uh, arriving on Wednesday, I was feeling the effects of a head cold jet lag and it was pissing with rain so therefore my excitement levels weren't like normal levels of um, approaching Phillip Island. However, when things started to clear up on uh, on Friday um, and I got to go out and have a little look around the circuit, then everything started to to return to full uh, sensory overload. Um, and I kind of agree with Dave. Um, you know, the island is, uh, is quite small. It doesn't maybe have the, the infrastructure to house uh, 100,000 people. Race day attendance was generally quite small, even though this was the first race in Australia for three years. Um, we were hearing from, I heard from Aussie journalists, um, Aussie attendees, spectators, that um, they were pretty excited for this weekend. They felt it was going to be a complete sellout because people have been starved of international events for so long. Um, and, you know, 40,000 is maybe just a, a bit of a disappointing number. Uh, I don't think it is a disappointing number because if you look at the past, I think like three or four uh, events, numbers were between 30 and 35,000, 36,000. So 40,000 is actually uh, pretty decent. It wasn't uh, the, the heyday of, of, of the stony years uh, was 50,000. Those were the really big numbers. Uh, but I mean, to me, 40,000 seems pretty decent. Decent, but not outstanding. Um, and maybe we were expecting initially um, kind of like outstanding sellout uh, crowds. Um, but um, I take what you say. I, I, there is an element of, of me which um, is a little scared when I watch racing at Phillip Island. It is such a fast track. It was interesting hearing the riders talk about their experiences on Friday because even for them, guys that are racing every other weekend on ridiculously fast tracks even they had to sort of build themselves up to um you know adjust their mind to the kind of levels of speed that they they experience here and just the fact the matter is that there is not really a slow crash which um you know which it sort of exacerbates the risk here um all that said it's a wonderful 
just a wonderful venue when it's not pissing rain. Even when it's windy and it's cold, it's there's no other place like it. And the fact that it is a bit of a trek to get to almost adds to the kind of sense of adventure being there. Um, and when you have kind of the race that you had on Saturday, sorry, on Sunday, um, you know, I was looking back at previous brilliant races that you would maybe say, yeah, that was one of the best races of all time. I think there was like six that I had counted that happened just to Phillip Island alone. And that was probably another one that we just experienced. So, um, slightly um yeah not exactly like the most modern facility in the world but um you know makes up for it in all other aspects yeah it's uh, i mean we have to take into account that the, you know the track hasn't been resurfaced in a decade and uh, dave i think you dug up the statistic that there's only two races in the last seven or something that have actually been faster then, you know, the, the 2022 race just gone, um, you know, they've been slower each time. I mean, of course, the the diversity of the climate um, at Phillip Island has a part to play. But I just think if you're if you have um, a top flight world championship standard TV broadcast and it's being interrupted by things like wildlife running on the track. I mean, how, how does that make the Australian Grand Prix look? I mean, you could argue it's part of, of the charm of Phillip Island and you cross your fingers that there isn't a collision and, and you know, the, I mean, we've seen birds obliterated by, you know, fairings at 350 k's down the, down the main straight. But, you know, I, I think last weekend there were a couple of instances where you think we were lucky to escape there uh, or the, well, I should say the riders were lucky to escape. And I just you have that little mixed feeling where you, you think amazing place, but... You know, and of course, perhaps nothing can be done, but there's just something a little, I don't want to, amateurish about it. I mean, I'm really not throwing a dart at Phillip Island, but it just, uh, you know, they just have that sensation after seeing that many hours of televised coverage around it. I think the, I don't think there's, there's much you can do about the, um, about the wildlife issue because... I mean, for a start, it's very remote. And the more remote things are, the more, uh, you know, the more wildlife there is around it. In fact, the, the irony is that um, um, racetracks are actually very good for uh, for sort of wildlife and for flora and stuff because they're, they're relatively untouched. They don't, you don't see a lot of people there all of the time. Uh, if you go to Aston, for example, you'll see um, uh, oyster catchers and terns actually nesting in the gravel traps because, um, uh, it, you know, the, it's relatively peace and quiet. It's relatively peace and quiet in sort of in, during their nesting period in April and May. And then all of a sudden, it, people start turning up. But a lot of the time, they don't mind the noise. The noise is fine. It's the people that they don't, they don't like. And there's, it is quite easy to get away from people the trouble with you do get the odd bird in a cathedral Dave. yeah you do (laughs) you do in fact uh when we go uh when we go to the 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 dust tt it's uh usually just about the moment at which the swallows because there's loads and loads of swallows nest there they all nest under the eaves uh and the swallows are all um uh, just about that they're the hatchlings are getting ready to actually leave the nest or the fledglings, rather. Um, and uh, so there's sort of like bird shit everywhere and uh, these <laughs> extremely noisy swallows um, uh, flying in and out, looking extremely annoyed at all of these people who've all of a sudden turned up. Um, but like like I was saying, Phillip Island is on the edge of nowhere. Um, it's, it's, it's very remote. There's a lot of wildlife around there. It's also on the edge of the ocean. Uh, and uh, it's quite hard to build a fence around the ocean. It's, it's hard to get... Um, uh, and the ocean always attracts wildlife, so you're always going to get lots and lots of bird life. Uh, uh, I think wallabies, the, part of the problem with, with wallabies is, that, you know, fences are not really, uh, are not always good enough to uh, to hold them, to stop them. I think some of them uh, will actually, uh, you know, dig burrows or dig holes and dig underneath fences. Um, uh, some will jump clear over fences, and it's just really, really hard to uh, keep all of that wildlife out. We've seen animals elsewhere. I mean, you know, it's quite common to see rabbits, but then a rabbit is only, you know, a kilo, a kilo and a half maybe, uh, rather than a wallaby, which is, I don't know, 10, 15 kilos, and if you hit one of those, it's going to hurt. The same with the geese. These, I mean, you know, you can't impose a no-fly zone uh, for, for 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 birds over the Phillip Island. It's just not. Uh, yeah. It's <laughs> difficult to enforce, and you can't start, you know, shooting them all down. That wouldn't uh, wouldn't help either. It'd be <laughs> most inhumane. Yes. Um, 
Neil, one thing you were, I mean, you were suitably inspired enough on Sunday to start positing whether this, this race may have been one of the best ever um, at Phillip Island. I mean, I'm going to show my age by saying there was a time when we used to watch 500cc Grand Prix racing by ordering a VHS cassette. Um, it would arrive soon after the Grand Prix, courtesy of a company called Duke Marketing. I don't know if they still exist. Um, and I can remember very well um, the, the 1989 uh, Australian Grand Prix, the first one back at Phillip Island after I think it was Bob Barnard that remodeled the whole course. And there was some fantastic video footage as part of the build-up on this, this Grand Prix highlights clip that showed how dilapidated Phillip Island had become. I mean, it was a site that was inhabited by sheep. Um, completely by wildlife so you could argue that motorcycling and crowds have really um, kind of invaded the the natural environment for these creatures but uh, you know you saw how this the track was brought to life again by Barnard and his crew and for me that that 1989 Grand Prix won by Wayne Gardner after a fantastic battle you know with the likes of Wayne Rainey uh, I think Kevin Schwantz was in there for, oh, actually, well, he was briefly in before I think he high-sided out of, um, you know, Dookie Heights just at the bottom there. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, 1990, Gardner won again in the, the following edition after a four-way scrap. Um, you know, Dewan was very much part of that battle. Uh, you know, those for me were, you know, pinnacle moments of, of races. But, uh, you know, it feels like there's been too many at Phillip Island. I mean, Dave, you were sort of saying on Twitter recently that there's too much racing going on. <laughs> um, it just seems like there's too much good material coming from from that particular circuit. I wouldn't mind if there was too much racing, if it was all uh, if it was all held at Phillip Island, apart from the uh, pesky bit about getting up at five o'clock in the morning to watch races. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's a fantastic circuit where the rider counts where technology where technical advances uh that you know you know the ride height devices and the aerodynamics i mean they only use the ride height device once onto the front straight uh and in a much more limited way than they would uh at some of the other tracks um well at one point they weren't going to use them at all no exactly no conjecture yeah yeah i suspect that some riders weren't using and some weren't but you could actually see from that fantastic shoulder cam footage uh that peco was actually was uh, engaging it out of the final corner and then manually disengaging it before turn one as well because again it, it needed to be manually disengaged because you can't actually um, you weren't sure that, that you were going to be breaking hard enough to actually throw the thing up to actually throw the tail up and 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 unlatch the uh, the device so uh, that was really interesting that was really interesting to see um, uh, but yeah again aerodynamics you can we don't have the same issue with aerodynamics because uh, there are multiple lines through everywhere. And if you think about all of the great racing tracks, the, pl- the places where there's been fantastic racing, it's been you know, like Silverstone, uh, Assen, uh, Mugello. It's places where there are multiple lines through uh, uh, through corners where you can actually attack and uh, in l- lots of different ways. Um, and... I think also uh, the MotoGP's biggest problem right now is the front tire, the front Michelin. We need Michelin have a new front tire, but it needs to be tested and they don't have any time to test it. Um, But this is a very, very easy, uh, it's a very, very easy track on the front tire because of the you know you're not braking very hard there's there's not a people lot people couldn't load it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean there's a lot of wear on the front front and rear because you know the bike is spending such a long time on the uh, on the side but you're not really loading it and sticking a lot of heat into it uh so you know you barely heard any uh, complaints about the, the front overheating or uh getting too much temperature in it um because it was almost impossible uh, you know you were just not loading it enough the way that you do at other tracks yeah quite the contrary dave i think Pierre Taramasso told Simon Crafer on the live feed that um, certain instances throughout um, free practice, riders were going out with, I think, 2.5 bar front tire pressure. They were coming in after a handful of laps with 1.9 bar, so a drop of 0.6 in pressure um, when they were riding. Um, which is quite unheard of in, in these kind of times and goes to show you that not just the layout, but I guess also the, the wind was having an effect, um, you know, the temperature as well. Um, so, yeah, the front tire pressure wasn't an issue. Um, and then we've just got this uh, this wonderful layout. And it does kind of show you that, um, you know, if you took away the kind of the, the advantage with the ride height devices, that, you know, we do still have a really close field in MotoGP this year. It's just that there have been times where everything's been close and 
uh, closed up together. But um, you know, overtaking has been has been something of an issue. Um, you know, I think Sunday was the second closest top ten in history. We had what eight tenths of a second covering the top seven riders. Um, I mean, this was uh, as close as you like, really. Yeah, the seventh different winner as well this season, Neil. So, I mean, that's not exactly a, a Marquez lockout like we saw in 2019 and the last time, you know, Philip Island staged a Grand Prix. But before we start getting all geeky talking about um, tie bar pressures, we were kind of ruminating whether, the, you know, Philip Island is, is the uh, the venue for all-time classics. What, what's your feeling on that, Neil? Is that just because of the type of racing we see, does that mean it's it should be the first Grand Prix on, on the calendar every year? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, if you're picking the the best Grand Prix of the year in terms of in terms of racing, in terms of spectacle, I think it's this. It's it's Mugello. Um, I think they're probably the the absolute top two. Um, then after that, you maybe have for racing Silverstone, um, Assen. I would have put the old Assen up at the top as well, but um, I think they've kind of made a bit of a mess of the first part of it. So that puts it just below the Philip and Magello, which I think are pretty much perfect venues. Careful, Neil, you'll be excommunicated. <laughs> exactly, I know I might not be welcome. We've already uh, offended enough uh, Dutchmen in this podcast recently, so I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> um, so, um, yes, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's just the, I think the layout really just lends itself to, to wonderful racing. Um, uh, the fact that also, um, we'll probably get into this a little bit more, but the fact that the rear tire was, I guess, critical and uh, everyone was kind of fearing the last seven laps, I think that also caused this race to be super bunched up and super close. No one was really prepared to get to the front of the race and uh, and try and pull away. Um, the only riders that were doing that were Ducatis, and I don't think they maybe had the absolute outright pace of um, of someone like Alex Rins in the end. Um, so you had all these kind of factors coming together to to contribute to this uh, close contest. But um, I mean, it was a it was a sight to behold. I don't know if I would say it was it was the best race ever. I mean, you can't really point at one, can you? I think it's quite a subjective thing, and it maybe depends on some personal factors. But um, I think you would have to add this to the canon. Um, certainly of classic Philip Island encounters. And it's probably the best race we've seen in MotoGP since, I don't know, Assen, maybe 2018, when we had that wonderful eight-rider group fight at the front. So, yeah, I mean, there was just uh, so much to talk about. Dave, uh, do you reckon there's any correlation between it being a slow race and therefore being a great race? And also, just going back to, you know, um, maybe we can try and explain to some of our listeners because there were certainly a few eyebrows raised when Mark Marquez came around the sighting lap and rolled up onto the grid with a soft rear tyre. I mean, Neil mentioned there about how tyre degradation was a big issue for a lot of people um, and there was a lot of um, debate on san on saturday saturday afternoon in fact amongst the paddock about which would be the the best choice for the race the hard or the medium so to see you know marquez going on the soft i guess you'd think he's going to attack for the first 10 laps see how it goes maybe put a show at the front perhaps test something else on the bike and that would be it but then as we saw uh you know he went all the way to the flag so how did that happen uh, in a way, this is a bit like the race in Buriram where it started off wet and the teams had to decide, is it going to stay wet? Is it going to be wet uh, all, all the way through? Is it going to dry out? Uh, and all of those decisions or all of those sort of guesses then make a difference for the kind of setup you're going to use. Are you going to set the bike up for uh, when it's a little bit drier? Are you going to set it up for if, it's, for if it stays wet? In the same way that Phillip Island, um, everyone knew that you would have to manage your tyres to get uh, to get to the end. Um, so everyone knew that it wasn't going to be completely flat out all the way to, you know, for all 27 laps. But there's lots of work, different ways of it being a slow race. You know, it could have been, it could still have been six or seven, eight seconds a lap fast or, you know, eight seconds faster over the entire race. Uh, and still everyone would have been there. It's just that the tire wear would have been different and we would have seen different, uh, different winners. And we saw, um, Mark Marquez on the grid decided, okay, I'm going to go with a soft despite 
the, what his team wanted. His, his team said, you know, we don't think it's going to last. And he said, it's all right. It's going to be a slow race. I can manage it. Um, the other thing is, is, is that where Mark is very good is in managing his rear tire is by using his front tire more. So he's using his front tire a lot more to actually turn the bike, um, putting a lot more stress on the front rather than the rear to, to, to leave more over. But you saw, for example, Aprilia, um, and Bezecchi as well. Or oh, sorry, not Bezecchi, Marini. They, they they were saying that we thought it was going to be faster, so we had more aggressive electronics uh, in the sense that you know they, they were intervening much much more because they wanted the electronics to help them to save tires to get to the end, and they they ended up being penalised by the fact that it was uh, that it was a really slow race. So they ended up with a lot of tire left. Uh, Alessio Spargo was saying, you know, he was opening the throttle and uh, and nothing was happening. Um, because the electronics, he just couldn't get any drive because the electronics were trying to save his, you know, they, uh, it was stopping him from spinning where, uh, Alex Rins had more aggressive or, you know, more freer on more open electronics. And so he could actually spin the rear to turn the bike. Um, but then it's down to the rider to manage it a lot more. And if the race is a lot faster, then you find yourself in, in real trouble. But the fact that it was a really slow race is look at Enea Bastanini. Bastanini had a terrible race. Um, yeah, uh, great had, comeback. Yeah, a, a great comeback from 20th after his airbag went off and he lost the second and a half. He was five and a half seconds back at one point and he finishes half a second off uh, uh, off of the winner. Um, that tells you how how slow this race was. But because the, the race is slow, you can save the tyres uh, a a lot more the, the the riders have a lot more input in how to manage the entire race and of course when everyone when everyone is going slow you're not loading the tires you're not sort of using everything you know so you're not running into these problems with with overheating front tires you're not running into all of these things and overtaking is much easier now just before we uh, go and swerve our own roadkill towards a little commercial break um one thing i wanted to ask you about was alex rins winning the grand prix um i don't know if you got a chance to sort of be in the paddock on sunday afternoon running around any debriefs to get a gauge on the sort of atmosphere around suzuki i mean we saw the celebrations on the tv coverage um it's a really strange situation for the team to be in because only the previous day rins was almost kind of laughing uh when you know he received news that Suzuki were going to be testing uh, they were actually going to be trying out a new sort of fairing uh, homologation or a fairing idea or concept um, before the Grand Prix in Sepang and it just seems like a very surreal position for Rins to be that competitive to Suzuki to still be um, seemingly proactive in a project that's only three weeks away from desisting completely so uh, I, I just wondered what you, you kind of saw around Suzuki and what was the sort of general vibe yeah I mean I think um, it was uh, obvious uh, elation, um, um, and you know I think it was also it was just a, a kind of welcome respite because it's been a pretty horrible time for them um, since they uh, announced the news. I think I spoke to Livio Supo on Sunday evening, and he was saying he first learned of uh, Suzuki's intention to leave MotoGP in, in Portimao, and you can see from basically that race, um, you know, the, their season just kind of fell apart. We have to actually remind ourselves that Rins was leading the championship at Portimao and um, he, we came away from the early flyaways thinking that he was going to be a very real championship contender, maybe Joanne Mir as well. Um, how good so, was he in Texas, you know? Exactly. So it's quite remarkable just how quickly the, the thing fell apart. Um, it does show you that you just take a, oh, this is a pretty major thing, but, um, you know, riders have to be, the environment around them has to be so right at the correct level and when something this major is going on behind the scenes, whenever uh, mechanics are looking for jobs, they're worried about their futures. I mean, that must happen to just the, the all-round feeling, um, the all-round morale. Um, so, yeah, I think there was uh, there was clearly uh, jubilation at, uh, at what had happened. And, you know, this was a, a proper send-off, I think, for a couple of months now. We sort of thought that the, the, the Suzuki MotoGP project was just going to fade away and... Um, uh, go out on a real bum note but um, this kind of struck a completely different chord um, and I think the thing from Sunday is that uh, in some ways they were unfortunate that it wasn't two Suzuki's at the front because Joan Mir was absolutely um, just depressed down sad um, he was convinced that he could have been up there fighting with Alex 
um, but essentially an issue with um, the instrument that measures front tire pressure in pit lane was incorrect and therefore when they were adjusting his front tire pressure before the race um, they put the wrong front tire pressure in and it was only afterward that they realized that um, the instrument that they use in the garage and then they take it onto the grid was actually broken and incorrect so Mir had a, a really uh, incorrect uh, tire pressure which led to him finishing down outside the points so um, yeah we could have had two Suzuki's on the podium I think if uh, Joanne um, didn't have that issue <clears throat> And you have to say, I think, Dave, you tweeted this yesterday, and I have to agree, you know, the Suzuki Project, they're, they're a nice bunch, um, they're warm, they're open, um, you know, they do a lot of stuff for us, the media, to make them approachable, and it was great to see them get this kind of victory, and also it was a nice little kind of middle finger reminder to the bosses back in Hamamatsu who made the decision to leave MotoGP, because... No one involved in the MotoGP side had anything to do with that. And, um, yeah. you know, this was a nice little reminder for them that, um, you know, they've, they've basically crashed and burned what was a potential world championship winning project. Um, and how many times have Suzuki been able to say that throughout its history of MotoGP? I mean, very, very rarely. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've thrown away a successful uh, championship. Now, I mean, you know, this was obviously a decision taken at the corporate level and is and is much more about the entire automotive business rather than uh, sort of uh, any sporting reasons or, or even motorcycle reasons. Um, but it is just incomprehensible that you would throw away a project which is capable of, you know, generating so much positive uh, publicity in terms of, uh, in, in terms of just you know sporting success. Uh, but I w wanted to just quickly say something about the um, the the test that they have at Mategi, I think, uh, this coming week. Uh, that's the kind of test which would have been booked probably at the beginning of the year because it would have been preparing material ready for the Valencia test, ready for next year. So it sort of shows you, it's one of those things which is, um, it, again, shows you the, 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 the whole thing was quite a surprise. Uh, it's been booked, it's probably already been paid for, or at least the budget has been uh, has been set aside for it. Um, might as well do it because you're not not, get, not going to get any money back by sort of not doing it. The savings, I mean, renting a track is a very very expensive business. Um, so I'm, I'm sure motivation will be high for the workload, Dave. But like you <laughs> pointed out again in the note show, you know maybe some minor set of data will feed into a fairing on a sports bike in you know six years time or something yeah exactly i mean it, it, it's entirely possible that uh, uh some kind of aerodynamic data will come out of this which will end up in the handguards on suzuki's biggest selling scooter in indonesia and it'll end up sort of you know <laughs> like uh, saving them saving them millions uh, uh, somehow so yeah i mean like all of this data all of this engineering data goes in uh, to one one big pot and it gets pulled out uh, you know this is a, a reason to go racing because you never know what you're going to learn you know you never it's, it's a bit like you know like teflon being in being discovered by uh, uh by nasa do you know what i mean it's that it, it, it it's it's that sort of thing you discover all of these uh, amazing technologies uh, without realizing it all of these sort of spin-off uh, technologies i mean like the, the, uh, we're doing a podcast on the internet, and that is only really possible uh, because a uh, a scientist at the uh, at CERN uh, need, really needed to link a whole bunch of research documents together, uh, and ended up inventing the World Wide Web. So, yeah, you you never know how how these things are going to affect. I thought you were going to say he created a podcast so he could talk <laughs> his way through all of them. <laughs> It's like putting milk in coffee, Dave. Some things you just stumble on and they're pure genius. Um, speaking of which, we're going to let Neil grab another one. Uh, you know, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back because I think Dave wants to cut the season short by saying the championship's already over and we should all go home. <laughs> Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 Glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Racing. 
Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're into the second half of the show. We're going to chew over our winners and losers. Uh, also talk a little bit about Sepang, which is coming up in a few days. But first of all, uh, Dave, um, is the championship done? We've got 14 points but now between Paco Bagnaia at the top and Fabio Quattararo in second place. Uh, I kind of said I expected Quattararo to be fighting for victory um, in Australia, proved wrong. Um, I really thought he's going to be going for it in Sepang and going to be competitive. And Neil kind of slammed me down on our Patreon note show by saying I was talking rot. Um, but he said it in a nicer way. So uh, may- maybe <laughs> no, you have a point. Maybe the championship is done. What <laughs> You kind of did, Neil, really. You gave me that withering look as if to say, um, you're on a podcast. Do you really know what you're talking about? <laughs> but come on. I mean, Quattararo and Yamaha, okay, there are two humongous straights in, in Sepang where there was also some pretty fast corners. And let's add into the fact that he really, 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 really has to produce a result. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's over, but, but not so much because of the nature of uh, Sepang and Valencia, but but just because of the various mental states of the riders. Uh, Banyair is just riding on a high. He's just really, uh, he has this momentum. He's just, uh, he's outscored, uh, uh, since Assen, he's outscored uh, Quattararo by 105 points. Um, he's he's just been completely unstoppable in the second half of the uh, of the championship you know when he when he hasn't when he's been on the champ he's been on the uh, he's been on the podium i think his only really mistake was at uh, was at Mategi. and quateraro really really looks like he keeps on making mistakes he's not looking at all comfortable uh he knows that he's having to ride on the absolute limits to even just be able to keep up um and then it's easy to get drawn into mistakes and um when you are riding with confidence then it's then it's much easier to stay on the limit without stepping over it but when you are constantly uh you know worried about losing it about missing out then then it becomes a lot more difficult then then it's easy to get drawn into mistake and i think what's that now uh, well certainly two mistakes pretty much uh in a row although you can't really say burry ram was was his mistake um but yeah he's just made more and more mistakes in the in the second half of the season it was looked it looked as though Fabio was almost uh, just accepting of his fate. I thought coming into Phillip Island where it was like, well, uh, I can't really do anymore. Um, I got the impression that um, him leaving the track early in Thailand uh, after the, the disastrous race there was uh, him kind of realizing that it was sort of slipping through his, his fingers. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree with, uh, with Dave. You kind of compare um, his mentality, how he held up in Phillip Island um, to Banyai and you know there's no there's no contrast you know Fabio as I mentioned earlier just didn't look really at home I think at any point in the race two huge huge mistakes uh, which were very costly and you know Banyai didn't have the easiest race either like his start device uh, whole shot device didn't engage properly um, you know that could have flustered him um, yeah I think he was already past Quartararo on the first lap I know that his technical his machine advantage at the moment is colossal i think earlier in the season we could maybe have made the claim that the aprilia was kind of an equal to the ducati but i think in the last couple of weeks we've seen that ducati is once again head and shoulders above the rest i mean had jack miller not been taken out by alex marquez we probably would have had seven ducatis um in the top 10 um and possibly you know six of them would have been in that league group would have, would have had a league group of eight rather than seven with six Ducatis, which is just absurd around Phillip Island as well. Um, however, I do think we need to give Peko um, a great deal of credit because the championship is on the line, yet he was the one that was out there at the front um, leading, uh, setting the pace for the majority of the second half of the race. He came within the lap of winning the race at Phillip Island, which I think would have been a really unlikely prospect. Um, and uh, he looks pretty settled he just looks like the the absolute man saying that <clears throat> this is Pekka Banyaya 
we have seen mistakes from him in very critical moments before. The dynamic has now shifted in the championship quite considerably from him being the chaser to now being the chased. Although it remains to be seen whether he will actually be chased in the final couple of rounds. And as Dave said, it's going to rain in Sepang. Now, he was impressive in the rain, obviously, in Thailand. That was a great ride. Um, but maybe the rain in Sepang opens up different possibilities. Um, I think it's really, really difficult to see Quartararo winning it from here. Um, but I think we've seen enough from Banyaya this year to suggest that we can't say with full confidence that he's completely bulletproof and, uh, and there'll be no mistakes from here. However, it's been it's been an impressive run, and you have to say that it has been a really impressive run, even though the Ducati is clearly such a competitive package. There have been a lot of race situations now where Peko has had to bear, you know, incredible amounts of pressure, uh, particularly at the front. So while he has cracked in some instances, I think there is, you know, a very good, a strong argument to say that he is able to, you know, bear the weight of, um, you know, having somebody breathing down his neck for for most of the distance, or to have to contend with, you know, outside forces as well. Um, you know, he he recovered quite well, I think, after the setback in Catalonia. I mean, the second half of the season has been entirely his, but. I just wonder for the first time if maybe Yamaha and Quattararo are really feeling the the oppression in numbers because if you look, I'll, I'll be amazed if any of these riders don't watch the race back at least once or twice um, after it's happened. And if Quattararo is watching these recent Grand Prix, then he's going to see Bagnaia and Bastinini. He's going to see Bagnaia and Zarco. He's going to see Bagnaia and Bezeki. Um, you know, there is, uh, there's, there is a fleet. I mean... This is a championship, Dave, you could say is built on the shoulders of, of on 14, 14 shoulders, you know, or seven or however, however much you want to count it from riders. I mean, this is, has been um, very much a group or a team or a company effort to, to, to wrestle this title away from the Japanese. Uh, I mean, absolutely. If you look at uh, Ducati's record, the last time that there was a Ducati off of the podium was, I think, Silverstone last year. There's been there's been at least one Ducati on the on the podium every race this year. Uh, there was at least one po uh, one Ducati on the podium uh, in 14 of the 18 races last year. So this has been coming for a while. Um, the, they also locked out the front rows enough times, Dave. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. And that was also such a tool for for Quattararo last season. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yes, exactly. Ducatis have been locking out the front. Row. And it, 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 uh, to an extent, I think that has been the secret of, of Ducati's dominate, uh, dominance this year, uh, that they have just completely, you know, they've, they've locked out the front row. They've been so good and so strong at qualifying. I think it's a risk for the sprint race next year. I think it's we're going to see a lot of Ducatis winning those, and it's really going to look a little bit skewed, um, unless Yamaha can come up with something and Honda can come up with something. Um, and, well, hopefully KTM can come up with something. Um, uh, but it, yeah, I mean, it, this is very much a Ducati championship. If you look at the uh, uh, points, the number of points for the manufacturers, um, I think Ducati are just slightly ahead of where Mark Marquez was and, and Honda was in 2019. That's how successful uh, they've been. It's just that, you know, Ducati have done it with six riders. Um, or I think, uh, uh, is it six? Yeah, I think it's, it's five or six riders who've been on the podium for Ducati um, uh, and who've actually scored I think it's five riders who've scored points for Ducati but there's been six different D uh, Ducati riders on the podium well, it's only only Digier and Marini I think have yet to, yeah. to make it have yet, yeah. have yet to make it onto the podium yeah exactly that tells you it, it sort of exactly where it is and to an extent I mean the fact that uh, what's um, Pekka is on 233 points I think um, Mark Mark is at this same point after 18 races in 2019 was on 395 points um, it sort of shows you how splintered this championship is and I've been sort of emailing backwards and forwards with um, uh, with Dennis Noyes and Dennis has been uh pointing out he's been asking basically is this a strong championship is this really a strong championship um if we've got so many different riders winning and no one capable of uh, and no one capable of uh you know laying down the law if you like um the fact that Pekka Banyaya is likely to win this with five DNFs four of his own making 
um, is just astonishing. It's just it, it's absolutely unheard of. And the only reason he can do it is because there are, uh, everyone else is making the same amount of mistakes. So uh, are we really living in a period of you know the very best riders, or are they all equally flawed? Just quickly, rapidly then, who wins the championship this year? And does Alesh pip arguably second place for the runner-up slot in the standings? Neil? Uh, you know, it's possible. You know, Quartararo in uh, 2020, I think, entered the penultimate um, triplet that we had. Leading the championship, he ended up finishing eighth. It was a total meltdown, a total disaster. I really, really hope that it's not a similar kind of thing, although I do feel that it has that sort of vibe at the moment. Um, does does uh, Aleish uh, pip him? No, probably not, because Aleish's form recently has been <laughs> pretty lukewarm also. Um, you know, he's had uh, big opportunities, especially in Japan. He feels he could have been winning the race. He felt he could have won the race in Australia, but um, he was quite frank and just said that we're not ready to, to fight for the championship at the moment. We keep making these mistakes. So it's not as if he's been um, in championship form either. Um, really, the only men that have been have been uh, guys that are on Ducatis. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I think Banyai is going to win it. I wouldn't be surprised if he actually won it in Malaysia. And, um, yeah, I think Fabio will just do enough to hold on to second. Dave, uh, Prosecco or Champagne? Uh, well, I'll have the Prosecco. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it... it Banyaya, I think Banyaya wraps it up in Malaysia. Uh, he needs to gain 11 points on Quartararo. Um, I think he can do that. Um, uh, I mean, unless it's wet, because I think, I'm not sure, I think the, the track is fairly grippy in the wet, and that would really play into Fabio's uh, hands. So if it does rain and it is a wet race, uh, then that would be a massive, massive step for, for Quattararo, a massive um, uh, advantage for him. Um, but yeah, Banyar is just in that headspace. He's just in that, um, everything is rolling for him. So I think, uh, uh, I think it is Banyar's to lose. I would, be surprised if it went to Valencia but if it does go to Valencia there's gonna, there's going to be uh, it would take a crash by Banyaya uh, for him to actually uh, throw it away and what well, about you? selfishly wanting the championship to go down all the, all the way to the, to the wire and I think I might get a, I think I'm going to get it so um, I'm not going to say who's going to win. At this point, oh, I don't really oh, care. Oh, I think oh, it's been... oh, oh, we had to. So you had to. You have to add. It's all very well saying, you know, look, we're, uh, who do you think is going to win? But I'm not going to tell you because it's a secret. You have to say as well. Uh, oh, that's the pressure of a name. Oh, God, it has to be Bagnaya for all the reasons you've just said. There we go. Let's move on to the next subject. Neil, um, winner from Phillip Island. Who was your victor? Who stood out for you apart from the obvious? Well, I wouldn't say he stood out, um, but the luck uh, that he in, uh, encountered uh, certainly stood out. And that was uh, Ayagura. I think he has to be the big weekend from, sorry, the big winner from uh, Phillip Island. Um, He's your big winner. My big winner, yeah. Just because um, I thought this was going to be a disaster. I mean, this was potentially going to be the nail in his championship coffin. I think if Augusto Fernandez finished second, he would have had a 21.5 point advantage um, going to Malaysia. Uh, well, sorry, it wouldn't have been that big. It would have been around uh, uh, 18, thereabouts. Um, still a, a mighty advantage with uh, two races to play, but uh, Augusto inexplicably crashed out of uh, third place um, at uh, at turn two, midway through the Moto2 race, and Maguro was just having one of the, the I think, the worst, the worst um, race of his uh, season quite comfortably. And um, yeah, he just wanted to bring it home. And the fact that he finished in 11th and still took the championship lead, um, I think he has to be counting his lucky stars. Any sort of good fortune that he, um, uh, bad fortune that he endured in Thailand, I think he more than made up here. So um, yeah, it wasn't the most convincing, but uh, I would say he's the big winner. I'm going to take, um, uh, you know, the moment here with your verdict on the winner, just to mention that Augusto Fernandez was my loser from the weekend. Um, a very rare mistake from him. Watching the replay back, I did wonder because Pedro Acosta had a little moment going into turn two and uh, Fernandez was quite close. I just wonder if he kind of reacted to that momentary break in rear grip from Acosta. 
Um, but I don't think it would have been enough to make him crash out like that. But um, Dave, I'm just wondering if your engineering and analytical brain can cope with the 0.5 on the points. Um, <laughs> I mean, have you got used to it yet? Because, you know, Fernandez had a very slender 1.5 advantage. Um, it looked like Neil said it could have been huge. It could have been title deciding. And now he's a, a 3.5 deficit. I actually love the half points. I think it's great. Um, also because it breaks everyone's systems. So uh, it took uh, uh, Dorna's... Um, uh, the MotoGP.com results website, it just, you know, they, it just refused to show the Moto2 uh, <laughs> championship standings because it doesn't they, exist. Yeah, because they, 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 they hadn't realized that, you know, half points was actually, was actually a possibility. So, I mean, like I, uh, uh, as a, as a former software engineer, I love things which break, um, for unexpected reasons, except if I have to fix it. Um, but, uh, but, but uh, yeah, I think uh, it, it's really interesting that the, the the contrast between Fernandez um, and uh, Isan Guevara in that you know uh, Fernandez threw it away basically because the, the pressure the pressure is on him and again I think this is why Peko Bagnaia is going to win because he's just not showing any signs of pressure. For me, uh, the winner, and I have to apologize because in our note show on Sunday, we didn't mention Isan Guevara at all. Um, he's just become the first world champion in the categories this season. And it would just, it, it shows how much went on in the MotoGP race that we kind of bypassed him totally. So apologies to the 18 year old Mallorcan. Um, a fantastic job. I mean, Neil, you talked about what a great race it was in MotoGP. I mean, Moto3, I think, rivaled it in the second half. Those last 12, 13 laps were pretty epic. But um, yeah, Guevara winning the Moto3 World Championship, um, you know, and Gascas, uh, Aspar, so the Aspar team winning their second crown, I think, in the last two years, three years. Um, of course, after Albert Arenas delivering the last one as the first for Gascas um, in the MotoGP categories, um, they've won a junior GP title, of course, but not quite the same thing. So, yep, Guevara, easily my winner, a very easy choice there. Um, but I also want to mention Marco Bezecchi uh, taking Rookie of the Year. Uh, I'm not too sure whether we think it should be really celebrated as much as 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 it is i mean being rookie of the year i guess is, is a pretty big deal i mean you're you're highly entitled to to evaluate it as you wish um and guys i think Pazeki is a fantastic example like fabio quattro in 2019 of the right rider on the right bike at the right time without the the pressure needed to deliver um and he's been brilliant I mean, again, he's had that kind of Bastinini-esque trend of being able to preserve tyres and, and exercise a very strong race strategy. I think he's uh, he's been, you know, um, overly impressive. I think it definitely you're, what you're seeing is the, the benefit of not having very much pressure because he's just he has been fantastic. I think Rookie of the Year this year does mean more because uh, we've got, what, four or five um, uh, rookies. Uh, the two riders who completely dominated Moto2 category last year. Um, and, uh, I mean, yeah, obviously they've been really badly hampered by the bike because the KTM has been much more difficult to run just basically more difficult to ride. Uh, so coming in as a rookie is a much more difficult prospect. The, the Ducati is really easy to ride and a bit like Quattro in 2019. Uh, if you've got the bike which can help you understand the category, then you get up to speed uh, more quickly. Um, but yeah, I mean... Just well, I, I was going to say, Dave, I mean, it showed also the strength of Fernandez and Gardner last year in Moto Two, and the Bezeki was a was a bit part player. I mean, Neil, you were commentating all year on most of the sessions in Moto Two. I'm I'm pretty sure you wouldn't have predicted that Bezeki would have been this this good this early. No, definitely not. Although there definitely were signs. I think Bezeki in 2020, uh, also in his the year that he fought for the Moto Three Championship, where I thought he was really really impressive, um, and I was absolutely expecting him to to go on to Moto GP and to be an ex a success, but. Um, but yeah, I certainly at the start of this year, I had Gardner and Fernandez definitely ahead of him, just on on the the back of what we saw last year. But um, I mean, this is really impressive. Obviously, I think if it was dry in Thailand, he would have been up there fighting for the podium there as well. Um, so it seems that he's just got that he's got he's got that final piece um, sorted out now. And um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him challenging at the front again in the next few races. Dave, who is your hero from Australia? Uh, my big winner from uh, Philip Ireland has to be Mark Marquez. Um, mostly, I mean, not just because he scored 
you know, he rode an outstanding race. He gambled. He made exactly the right choice at the beginning of the race. Uh, he was able to ride the way that he wanted to. Uh, he had a lot of help from the from the track. Um, and from the fact that the, the, that the race was slow, but you could see how much it meant for him at the end of the year, uh, at the end of the race. It also, you could see how much it meant to the team as well. So it was a massive morale boost for the team as well. And it really, what HRC have needed is that kind of morale boost. Um, but I think I was uh, messing about with before with, with uh, Peter Baum after the race. And uh, Peter was basically saying, like, uh, Mark must be laughing because he, he's had a chance to assess these guys all up close, fighting at the front while being able to ride the way that he, he knows that he can ride. Uh, and he must be thinking, like, well, you know, if, if Onla can give me a little bit more bike, just a fraction more feeling on the front, um, I'm going to absolutely walk next year. So for me, I think... This wasn't just a victory for, uh, or, or coming second wasn't just a, a really massive success for Mark Marquez in the position. It was more about all of the things that he learned, all of the things that he understood, um, and uh, it was another step for 2023. He's completely focused on 2023. That was why he spent all of Friday testing aero and stuff, and then he went on to ride with, actually ride and race with the aero which they'd uh, which they'd actually tried out at Phillip Island. Uh, so yeah, this was this I think was a big weekend for Mark Marquez. Talking about multiple world champions, of course, um, just before Australia, Phil Reed passed away at the age of 83. Uh, seven world championships, the first man to do ever to do the Triple Crown, so 125, 250, and 500cc titles. Um, you know, a real MotoGP legend, it has to be said. So it was a, there was a poignant moment there for, for Phil Reed uh, just before the Grand Prix got underway. But um, moving on to, to losers, um, I mentioned mine already in the Moto2 category. Um, Neil, who was your underachiever from Phillip Island? Uh, a brilliant, it has to be, um, because I think on Saturday we thought that perhaps uh, both riders could be up there fighting for victory. Um, both of the riders certainly felt that they could have done that, um, but um, yeah, they, they seemed to, well, on Alish's side of the garage, seemed to get it wrong. Um, Alish obviously um, didn't have the correct electronic settings in. It seems that they went a bit too conservative, and it led to him saying that um, we're not ready to fight for the championship um, because essentially that's two massive, massive mistakes that they've made in uh, the past three races that have led to um, led to pretty shabby results, sub subpar results. Um, Maverick Vinales was completely inconsolable after the race. Wouldn't say what had happened. Now, does Maverick need to stop being so happy and optimistic and positive <laughs> on Thursday and Friday? Yes, oh. yes, he does. Yes, but, but <laughs> um, then uh, this is uh, this is what Maverick Finales does. He's giddy and happy and uh, full of confidence on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and then Sunday is a different matter. However, we have to say that there was a photo uh, of Maverick in the race on Sunday, and it looked as though his front tire was absolutely shot to pieces. So it did appear that he was having some serious, serious tire issues in that race and uh you know i think he was uh three four five seconds a lap slower than what he was in fp4 and um okay you can account for maybe a second slower um but uh but yeah that kind of difference you have to say um something mechanical must have gone wrong so i'm sure we'll hear more of that in in spain but yeah brilliant um you have to say no it's it, they're out of it um i, I can't see any way back for Alish uh in the championship He's now, what, 27 points back with uh, 15 still in play. Um, a difficult job just got more difficult. Uh, I did, because I was, I was looking at photos of front tyres uh, after the race to see who was suffering. Like, Mavericks was by far the worst. Um, a lot of riders had a really, uh, had a, you could see that the, the, the front was really a bit of a mess. Um, uh, Alicia's looked bad as well, and I suspect that, that, that there was a, that there's some kind of a setup issue with the uh, uh, with the Aprilia, which actually loads the front, uh, which actually you know causes a problem on the front. So, uh, yeah, it does seem. I, I think they're still just lacking the experience to actually bring home a title. So, Dave, for you, who was uh, deserving of the wonky rear uh, front tyre from, from Australia then? Uh, well, we've discussed it already. Um, uh, the, the man who managed to throw his championship away 
with for for no particular reason at turn four, um, Fabio Quartararo. Um, he said that uh, it, he was forced to break because of because Marini was in front of him. I was watching from the onboard. I looked at the helicopter shot. I looked at lots of different shots, and it didn't look particularly you know difficult. It didn't look like Fabio had a really like he. He, he, he was really forced into braking that hour, but he started to brake. He lost the, the 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 rear came up on him, lost control of the bike, had to run wide, and then uh, from there it was obviously he was always going to crash. Well, guys, penultimate round time feels like a long season, but it's coming to an end. Just three weeks left to go in 2022. Uh, Neil, I will see you in Sepang. Um, it's going to be two long flights to get out there. Uh, I'm looking forward to that freezing cold air conditioning press room <laughs> that they usually have. Bring your jacket. Uh, not. Yes, I shall. Uh, that big padded one like you had in Thailand. It's uh, my inspiration for packing. It certainly will be. Uh, Dave, we look forward to speaking to you, um, you know, both before and during the Grand Prix. Uh, that's it, guys. Uh, if you're listening to this and you've got any comments, any feedback, any questions for us, then just hit us up on Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter. And of course, if you're a patron listener, you can write directly to us through that particular platform. Big thanks to Rental and FlyRacing.com for supporting the pod. We'll be back right after Sepang to talk about that penultimate Grand Prix of the season. Otherwise, enjoy the race on TV, guys, and we'll be back soon. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler. David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Like a mock mark, I'm going to start again. I try not to facepalm when you do good day. Yeah. <laughs> You could roll your eyes, Dave. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs>